Hi everyone, welcome back to Mind Your Body. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind you that today is the last day that you can sign up for the free e-course giveaway. This e-course is called Finally Conquer Your Goals in 2018. And in this e-course, I lead you through six modules of really examining through movement, a goal that you want to achieve so that you can understand what's been holding you back, and how to move forward. I'll lead you through guided movement exploration, video instruction, a 24-7 private chat group, a workbook that comes along with it, and a live support call with everyone who's taken the course. So if you're interested, I'm going to put the link right here in the episode description. If you're on a mobile app, you can just find that when you click on the episode. And if you're on mindyourbodydmt.com, you can just find that under the audio player. Again, please sign up by March 1st if you want to be considered. And you don't need any prior movement experience. But if you do, that's great too. Today, I'm talking to Jane Clapp, who I actually discovered on Instagram. She grabbed my attention with her posts about mindful movement and trauma recovery and talking a lot about nervous system regulation. So I got curious and I asked her to come onto the podcast. And I'm so happy I did because I love the conversation that we had. She talked about such complex ideas in a very understandable and clear way. And the way that she applies this information with her movement background is really fascinating and in a way that I have never heard before. So I'm excited to share this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. My name is Jane Clapp, and I'm a trauma recovery specialist and a movement coach and an educator, and I'm based in Toronto. I could talk more about what I do, but I mean, I think we have the whole hour for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually found you on Instagram, so that's that's pretty much where I discovered you, but I am interested more in what you do and what your online influence is and how you awesome. impact people. Nice. Yeah. Um, Instagram can be an amazing tool for connecting with people and, um, I've been writing for many years in my work and uh, I've really tried to keep my voice quite um, personal and authentic while weaving in the neuroscience of trauma and um, movement research. That is a big part of my day-to-day life. So um, I'm glad we connected and I tend to generally connect well with my work seems to um, resonate for dance therapists that I've, I've connected with um, over Instagram as well. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what, what is your background? Um, well, I started teaching group fitness when I was 19 and that'll take us all the way back to 1991. <laughs> um, I grew up on the West coast of Canada on an Island and, uh, I earned a Bachelor of Commerce degree and was going to do everything right, which is a business degree, worked in HR and labor relations and got a pretty good education from um, when I worked at a trade union for a couple of years, which expanded my very WASPy worldview. 
um, and then moved out to Toronto in, in 98 and left behind that corporate work and just meandered back into the fitness world um, and didn't really expect for it to become my full-time work. But when I trace uh, things back, I see that that um, super fun, high-energy, um, choreographed, high-impact aerobics that I started when, doing when I was 15 was probably the thing that really kept my head above water growing up in an environment that was not particularly calm and peaceful and was fraught with um, intergenerational trauma. So it, it was really became an outlet for me. And, um, and now I've really learned how to specialize in helping people embrace resilience through their bodies and um, complement a lot of talk therapy and psychotherapy that people do and even weave some psychoeducation around the neurobiology of trauma into my work, which is a huge piece of, of really what I've been focusing on in the last few years in particular. Mm. So do you work uh, mostly with on one-to-one or with groups of people? Um, I have taught like general movement classes for years and years, but I, I don't offer that type of work anymore. Most a lot of my work is one on one, but I also offer an educa professional education program called Movement for Trauma, which is a three part education program that is open to movement professionals, psychotherapists, um, artists, and educators. Anybody who's wanting to find a way to to move to do their work in a more trauma intelligent and informed way, and then I also. Of offer webinar programs, um, recovery or warrior web webinar programs. So that's, it's pretty, it's three part, but I also do a lot of speaking work. Um, I've spoken at a couple of fire chiefs conferences, people who interface with trauma through their work, you know, helping them learn how not to experience vicarious or secondary trauma, um, and be able to not reach burnout. I spoke at a feminist entrepreneurs conference this last year too, which was really great. And, and a, a big part of my work is helping women um, be able to embrace their power and strength um, in a way that they might not have been able to in the past, because we often learn that staying small has been an adaptive mechanism for staying safe. And uh, in particular, I use an anti-oppressive lens in the way that I teach and coach. So what do you mean um, by I that? Anti-oppressive lens means um, understanding um, people's struggles from at least and challenges with their health and well-being through a biopsychosocial perspective. So that the way that people might experience um, racism, discrimination, any type of marginalization, poverty, how that plays out in people's bodies and how that plays out and people's um, access to services and resources and how that's going to impact um, how people recover if they do at all. So I've, I took a year-long program with the Canadian Centre for Victims of Torture, which looked at the biopsychosocial impacts of trauma on people's physical and mental health. And I've taught many um, movements for regulation and resilience classes to varying populations of the Center for Victims of Torture. And so um, I have a broader understanding of wellness that extends beyond my privileged intersectionalities. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. I'd love to dive into that a little more. 
Sure. But there were, yeah, there were some things that you had said that I want to ask about. So um, the first thing that you said was that you help uh, movement healers and professionals and psychotherapists Mm-hmm. understand trauma-informed work? The, the neurobiology of trauma, essentially, mm-hmm. and toxic and traumatic stress, essentially, yeah. So what do you think, what would you say is the most, some of the most important things that you teach them or the most eye-opening things that they learn? Um, we look at the autonomic nervous system, basically our fight or flight and rest digest as bilateral, but it's actually it's three-part or more. And so we think we're always trying to downregulate um, people's stress and we're always trying to calm people's bodies down. But um, when people experience traumatic stress, um, it's not about fight or flight. If people go into fight or flight and effectively are able to take care of their needs or protect themselves, that's not where trauma happens. It happens when we go into a state of immobilization. And immobilization shows up in two ways. It shows up in uh, in um, freeze, the freeze response in our nervous systems, and that plays out in our fascial systems. So we go sort of like a deer in the headlights mm-hmm. um, or an animal in order to potentially not get eaten, for example, because we're mammals, will freeze and wait to see what's going to happen next or try to be less visible visible to prey. And that freeze response kind of keeps some people stuck in a stuck-on state, a hypervigilant state. It's called a sort of hyper um, involuntary hypertonicity, which is like full-body tension. Um, and so we try to find a way to work through that freeze response through movement that is very regulated and not overwhelming and not, not overstimulating because people are already in a very stimulated state. So it's mm-hmm. sort of like your foot's on the gas and the hand's on the brake at the same time. But the other response that happens um, in our bodies, is, because we are animals, mammals, <laughs> is um, if we feel overwhelmed in any way, even if it's psychological overwhelm, if we feel a threat to our life, especially, could be instantaneous or over time, We go into a state called collapse or feign death, and that's actually um, part of the vagus nerve, which we actually play dead instantly. So our blood pressure lowers, our heart rate lowers, um, our body temperature lowers, our bodies might go numb. And um, we're actually kind of in a state where we're playing dead, whether it's adoptive or not. Now in modern culture, our bodies still do that. And then even beyond that, we might go into an attached response or uh, it's called fawn or tend and be friends. So we have more than a bilateral nervous system. <laughs> That's the huge part. So a lot of the people that I educate are yoga teachers or body workers who are trying to do a whole lot of releasing. And that doesn't work for a lot of trauma survivors. Um, because first of all, if you go into freeze, there's a whole lot of movement potential, cortisol and adrenaline that needs to be used up and people need to go through a stress cycle completion. Wait, so, hold on. I just want to, I want to back up for a second. I, I just want to take a second to process all of that. And also thank you for making the distinction between, um, pointing out that there's the freeze portion of our nervous systems, but also that there's a difference between freezing and you called it play dead. But I I think that you're referring to what also looks like fainting, right? 
No, it's, no, it can be no. Fainting is on the far end of collapse. So collapse in the nervous system isn't just like losing consciousness. It's actually like actually going kind of numb physically. You still are awake, but you're sort of dissociative, or your cognition slows down. So it doesn't mean that collapses could show up as in the extreme case of, of losing consciousness or fainting. That's called the um, vasovagal response. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also just show up as someone who doesn't look distressed, who might have flat affect in their face, whose breath is quite like slow and calm, but that's actually like the last most primitive defense in our nervous system, which is what reptiles do. They play dead. Right, right. So I'm trying to clarify the difference between um, when you were talking about freeze, and then when you were talking about feigning dead, and then, and then you're you're saying that the feigning dead at the very end, the most severe part of that spectrum is the going unconscious is the vasovagal vasovagal, yeah, yeah, response. So, okay, like, if can we help? could draw, I know no one can see, but if we could kind of, like, paint a picture. Sure. I'll tell you a story about an animal who was getting hunted. Okay. For <laughs> which, for, yeah, for which, um, which part? For all of it. Okay, yeah, it. yeah, let's go. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm in a, a park with my daughter this summer, and we see a mink. And I'm sorry for any vegans online, but this is what happens. Um, We saw a mink and it was skulking across the path and we looked over to see what it was looking at and hunting. And there was a bunny, a wild bunny, just frozen, completely frozen still. And it, it knew that it was too um, close to the mink to actually get away. So instead of going into fight or flight, because fight wasn't an option to protect itself, flight wasn't an option because if it tried to run, the mink could cat up, catch up with it. So its nervous system, through something called neuroception, decided instantaneously to go into freeze. Because if it went into freeze, it would, it would be a little less fun to catch, first of all. <laughs> And when animals go into the freeze response, our tissues get really not very nice to to eat, right? It's sort of like very bristling eats. And so it's a very instantaneous response. So that bunny's in freeze. We're watching the mink. And then a bunny dashes out from behind the bush. And guess which bunny the mink chased? The one that was running. And so if if the mink actually caught up with that bunny and the bunny was like, okay, well... I'm going to get eaten and it would see the potential teeth sinking and coming to sink into it instantaneously. The autonomic nervous system in that bunny would decide to play dead because it's the last line of defense. So it would look less appetizing because heart rate would lower blood to body temperature would lower breathing would slow down. Right. And then if the bunny, if that didn't work, then in that collapse, feign death response, the very last thing that might happen is that bunny might lose consciousness or it might leave almost leave its body in what's called a dissociation um, from body or um, release a whole bunch of natural opioids and or release a whole bunch of natural opioids so it wouldn't even feel itself getting eaten. So we do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So anybody who's experienced trauma could have freeze or collapse as their go-to coping mechanism 
or adaptive survival mechanism at the time that continues to exist in their nervous system even after the threat has passed. Because if that bunny who went into freeze got away, what it does is it goes off into a safe place. It runs. First of all, it'll run and it'll discharge all that cortisol and adrenaline that it felt from that extreme fear. It'll run and dash and feel its body's ability to move again. And it would potentially shake and go into something called neurogenic tremoring, which is involuntary tremoring to discharge that fear. Are you talking about immediately after the situation? Okay. Yep. As soon as they knew that they were safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're designed to do that as well, except that we often get stuck in the middle of a stress cycle instead of moving through it. Or we get stuck in that feign death response in our nervous systems and we, we don't know how to come out of it. Because if you put too much energy into that system that went into faint death, it can feel like complete overwhelm again. So getting people to lie down to relax is not often a great response <laughs> until they've had an opportunity to kind of regulate their stress, their, their stress response to, mm-hmm. to life in general or have the opportunity to find the support to resolve the trauma. But what a lot of healers sometimes do is try to get people to cathart instead of looking at, okay, where are people at in their nervous system and how can I help regulate their autonomic nervous system to bring them back into that rest, digest, everything is cool state, right? Mm-hmm. And jump, jump to the processing of trauma or pain when people are still in freeze or collapse and it just keeps them there, keeps Mm -hmm. them stuck there. First, we have to bring people back into what's called the window of tolerance for stress, which is basically where everything's copacetic and you're like, okay, I've got this. I'm safe. The social engagement system comes back online, meaning we're actually available to connect with other people and essentially we're not in that like survival place in our brain. So you can't really do work when people are in still in, in that complete utter survival mode. And it doesn't always make sense why people get stuck there, right? So you're like, well, you're safe now and you're in a safe space. It's like, well, no, no, no. Their body is living in the past. Mm-hmm. They're stuck in the past. Yeah. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the the part of their brain that can process emotions and make decisions is not... Is offline. Yeah, it's not functioning when they're just in survival mode. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I talked about this on this podcast before, um, but I, I had a patient who I worked with for a very long time, and she um, she fainted a lot. Um, she was diagnosed as having pseudo-seizures, and I, I worked with her individually, and... As time went on, she was fainting less, and she mm. became really, really aggressive, and she was having uh, aggressive incidents a lot on the unit. And her whole treatment team was, they were really concerned, and they, they, they thought she was getting worse, and they just felt hopeless. And I wrote them this whole progress report of what we've been doing, and also why her aggression is actually a sign of her getting better. And it was amazing. She was like coming back to life. Yeah. It was like, it was really eye opening. And I mean, they were, they were like, wow, we didn't see it this way. How I think what you're describing right now is so important and such important information and can really help people understand that actually 
in the case that I just described, for example, it's, it's improvement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially if it's grounded and supported. Like I, I think it can be like trauma recovery can sometimes be like a leg that's asleep coming back to life and it can be very painful and it can be very overwhelming. So sometimes when people kind of feel that, that, um, feel all the things that they were blocking for a long time um, and numbing out of, from or dissociating from, it can be, it can feel so big that they might fall apart and, um, and it can be very destabilizing and further dysregulate and more dysregulating. So um, there's the therapeutic window of tolerance that most therapists, any therapist who claims to be trauma informed is going to be working with the therapeutic window of tolerance so that people don't, they're not processing uh, traumatic anything kind of traumatic outside of that window. So their social engagement system still online. They're regulated. Their their prefrontal cortex is available, right? And then a lot of people who try to do catharsis are actually outside of that window of tolerance and further grooving in those neural pathways around the trauma while people are re-experiencing the body memories of that. And so instead of taking a traumatic experience from a six-lane highway in some way in someone's brain, you know, to to a dirt road, re-experiencing all of it through the body and not being regulated can just make it groove in even deeper into our, our body and our brains. Yeah, can we elaborate on that and really clarify what that looks like? Maybe you have an example of what the window of tolerance looks like and how, what it looks like to go past that? Um, it varies per person, like for every person, but um, people's executive functioning functioning is available. People feel very... People In the window of tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The vagus nerve is active. Um, people's breathing is pretty well regulated. It's not like accessory breathing, you know, in the upper chest. People's eyes are looking to make eye contact with, with you. Um, that's the social engagement system because when our vagus nerve is online, our face is seeking attachment. We're seeking connection. Um, we're available to connect with um, emotionally with other people. When people are outside their window of tolerance, there could be like a freeze response, full body tension, eyes are very wide, chin is lifted up, um, eye movement is very quick. There's a whole lot of orienting responses going on, meaning like checking the environment. Yeah, motor reflexes can be overactive. <clears throat> so people are have a startle reflex. And then when people are in the collapse response, it could be kind of heavy lidded, um, delayed responses. Um, hearing can be affected from that as well. It, um, because the, um, in polyvagal theory, which is part of what I'm talking about with a collapse response, our hearing is affected. And we, we learn to pay attention not to sounds that are around connecting with other people, but sounds that are dangerous. So mm-hmm. even our, our inner ear muscle changes. People's bodies might seem a little flaccid. Um, you know, you can sense if you are like a body-oriented person interacting with someone, you can generally tell from your body whether or not they're present. You can kind mm-hmm. of access your own nervous system and intuition to feel whether or not they're present. So sometimes when people close their eyes and they're quite distressed and they're, they're kind of 
falling into their feelings, right? We're trying to make sure people um, have dual awareness, essentially. So Do that what? Dual awareness. Oh, dual awareness. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, if anybody is wanting to work with trauma survivors in any type of trauma-informed capacity, it's really about staying present through our senses as much as possible. Um, as the with, healer or therapist, you're saying? Well, for both people. Right. Yeah. So that people aren't time traveling and are keeping very grounded in the now through any type of, through their bodies, through sight, sound, touch, smell, um, and then movement that is high, like very proprioceptive or um, interoception is really helpful too, if that's available, any type of inner body sensations that people can stay grounded in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the this part about catharsis that um, you're saying a lot of healers go to as a treatment choice. Some, some do. I'm not saying everyone, but I have seen that people who are doing wanting to do trauma recovery work, even some yoga people are like, go feel all the pain. Mm, go okay. feel it all. That's what you're and saying. Then, okay. And you'll be done with it. Like, go feel it all. Get it out of your body, right? Get those toxic emotions out of your body. Or it, it really is trauma recovery is about reintegration. Mm-hmm. It's not about cutting off parts of ourselves. Um, it's about making friends with our inner body sensations that um, is difficult if you've experienced a lot of trauma because there's a whole lot of icky physiological sensations that go along with that. So it's not like we can fast forward and, and feel everything and be done with it. In fact, if you go into all your pain all at once, you're actually probably very dysregulated in your nervous system, overwhelmed, um, not present, and very likely potentially grooving in those neural pathways and those memories even deeper instead of trying to help them become more integrated into your larger life experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is definitely <laughs> reminding me of a lot of conversations I've had here on the podcast, the word regulation and how important that is. And I'm um, just curious about your perspective on what are some techniques that you use in movement. And I know you said interoception and uh, proprioception. Could you give some descriptive examples? Yeah, sure. Um Sometimes I'll use massage balls to create sensation in people's bodies through extraception, like an outside force. And I'll get people to ground in that sensation, say a ball under their foot that feels good and help them reorient to some sensation of pleasure there. And then potentially say, follow their breath. And if they feel overwhelmed at all, um, or very dysregulated, that's an example of dual awareness where you're taking two things at the same time and paying attention to them. Um, balance work can be really helpful as well. So I'll get people activating what's called the writing reflex. So when we're 
trying to orient and balance our bodies in space, um, there's an automatic reflex that kicks in that we don't have to think about, which is very presence orienting. And then um, I'll get people to kind of check in with any type of inner body sensation that they can and track that. That can be a really um, regulating activity. Orienting is another one, like scanning your environment and picking out five yellow things, five orange things, five red things is a really regulating tool and um even shaking the doing shaking with your own body um or tapping or padding or anything that brings sensation back into your body can be really helpful as well but i have a trauma a body hacks for traumatic stress toolkit that's on my website that people can um get access to if they sign up for my new- newsletter so there's a bunch of handy tools there that are really helpful as well great Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a certain structure? Uh, I'm just thinking about session structure as a dance therapist, but, um, you know, how do you know where to start? Where, you know, where do you often start when you're starting to work with somebody? Um, I like to find whatever works for bringing them into the present moment and helping them land in their bodies. So it really depends on the clients. Um, but I start with what is referred to as tracking. So tracking someone's body's eyes, prosody, and getting a sense for where they're at. I might start with small talk um, a little bit too, just shooting the shit to make sure their social engagement system is online before we start, um, mm-hmm. if that's available to them. Um, and then clients come to me for different reasons. Sometimes a lot of my focus might be biotensegrity. So my background is really focused on strength and functional mobility. So, um, some of my work is really grounded with a lot of my clients and helping their structural balance improve and bringing life back to parts of their bodies where they might have low neural drive. So there might be t- muscle tissue there, but there aren't the neural pathways to fire those muscle tissues. And there's often similar places in modern bodies that need more help and catching up to create, to work out the weak links. Like there's a lot of back bum and core work that most people who sit desks need to do in order to have improved biotensegrity, a lot of inner core unit training, but a lot of nervous system regulation when they're with me. So my, the end goal is how to empower people to self-regulate better and to feel more um, very embodied resilience and access the strengths that they already have. Are there certain things that you say when and if you witness a client going into a dysregulated state to bring them back? No, it depends on the client. I mean, it's very relational, my work. So um, it's really based on the individual connection I have with that client. So mm-hmm. there's definitely another tool that is really helpful is uh, play. If I can find a way to bring pa- people back to any sense of play um, is, is super helpful as well. So if that's available, that might be another tool that I use, but, um, I've trained in lots of different movement disciplines, which really helps me have a huge toolkit to work with. That's cool. Yeah. Play is, is my, one of my biggest go-tos if they've, like you said, if it's available, I think it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it really helps people decouple physiological activation from emotional affect. So sometimes people who've experienced a lot of toxic stress or trauma, any kind of physiological activation can, can trigger sometimes anxiety, fear, or any type of 
um, emotional response that is coupled with past traumatic memories. And so incorporating play with movement that is activating, you know, increases heart rate and breath can really separate out that physiological activation that from memories of, of the past as well. So it's an awesome tool. I think play is a, is a healing modality unto itself. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such powerful information. I, it's so interesting to hear about your background and into your approach now and how you use a lot of the functional movement to work with your clients. That's a new way for me to hear about it, but really, really interesting. Cool. I mean, like for women in particular, like working on grip strength and upper body strength is hugely powerful. It feeds back into um, a, a whole new level of emotional resilience as well that I've really noticed for people. Um, most Can of my clients, that? I want to work them in. Hmm? I'm now really personally interested because those are <laughs> those are two things that I, I work on on myself that are hard, but I I never thought about it in a in this perspective. So Mm. I'm really curious about what you just said. What do do you mean? Why particularly grip strength and upper body strength? Well, we're primates, first of all. So our bodies are designed to um, deal with a lot of different situations, but um, including just picking things up or holding our body weight you know, um, but grip strength, feeling kind of the weak links in our body, like weak hands, weak ankles, weak feet, you know, or weak muscles around our spine can make us feel more vulnerable and less able to respond to potential threats. In addition, um, the hands are really associated with the fight reflex in our, the fight response in our nervous systems. And so for us to feel safe out in the world, we innately need to walk around with this sense of, yes, I can run away from danger and yes, I can protect myself if I need to. But if our hands and wrists feel weak and our upper body feels weak, it can unconsciously feed into a sense of fragility. Yeah, that's cool to hear you explain that. I mean, I feel like I know that in a sense. I can't do a pull-up very well, and I'm like, oh, I'm so weak. But <laughs> to yeah, to hear that on a from your perspective with that that um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really interesting. It's an e- like it's a way in that doesn't involve emotional. Um, well, it can be, I have noticed people, women who have gone through a lot of trauma or, uh, emotional or physical abuse when they start to feel their power again in their bodies and their strength, it can be a little overwhelming sometimes because it's such a new feeling and it takes away that the staying small and unthreatening as a tool to stay out of dangerous way. And so it can be very life-changing for women in particular to feel their strength, maybe for the first time, and to feel how integrated their bodies are, like to see how our strength comes from how integrated our movement is and our sense of our whole bodies at any given time. And um, it's not our separate parts. And mm-hmm. I find that there has to be some some impact on psychological integration as well when we start to become more aware and have better um, access to all of our potential strengths in our body at the same time in a way that, you know, uh, um, takes into account people's uh, diverse um, abilities as well, you know. <laughs> 
I love that. I love that you went from teaching a, a, an aerobics class at 15, I think you said, to oh, yeah. <laughs> now just speaking about it and really finding so much depth in, in what it is or the path that you were on Thank all you. the way back then. Who knows what you're going to be doing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ask me in two years. Like I'm co-hosting a presence and clowning workshop, a trauma-informed <laughs> presence and clowning workshop. I didn't see that coming a couple months ago, but I stay very open to following my gut instincts around that. And mm. the beautiful thing when people become more embodied in a really grounded way and feeling resilient about it is that we have access to embodied intuition. And it's sort of like the force that's in all of us, right? That, that beacon, that thing that tells us when we're safe and when we're not. Yeah. you know, what people we want to be attached and connected to what people we don't and how to really find a way to express our whole selves in, in our work and our relationships. Um, it goes back, it goes beyond trauma informed in creating safe spaces to me. It, it extends to actually helping people come back to life. Yeah. So important, right? Yeah. To feel alive and feel like you're actually living. And vital. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're evolving within your own, within your own practice and your own work and where life is taking you. So that's pretty cool. I, uh, I started riding actually horses fold like regularly about two and a half years ago. And I've learned so much about our nervous systems and what's called co-regulation in our nervous systems through riding and starting mm -hmm. with thinking just with dressage and never thinking I was going to jump over things on a horse. <laughs> what a crazy thing to do. And uh, this partnership that I learned and mutual respect and energetic connection and, um, me needing to really hold space so that the horse I ride has confidence in me and doesn't have to be on guard taught me so much about my job as a coach and also how my faith in, in him allows me to let go and fly for a moment. You know, it's just <laughs> like I'm jumping over things and I have the most spiritual experience for a slice of time and, uh, yeah, it's incredible. And the, even the smallest movements or adjustments in where my eyes go and how my eyes can make a beautiful giant creature turn to the right or the left is like, wow. So I learned so much about how to regulate myself so that he could do what he does best. And I think that's so much um, our jobs in working with people. Um, when we want to help people, you know, reach their, their best, whatever that means to them. Yeah. What a beautiful metaphor. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a good coach. <laughs> <laughs> Your horse. Yeah. And yeah. my coach coach. Oh, too. Yeah. She's, okay. she's, I didn't know if that was another yeah. metaphor. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, she's, she's really, really incredible. Right. Every therapist could use a therapist. Every coach could use a coach. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I think this was so valuable. Well, thanks for having me and nice chatting with you. All right. That's a wrap. Don't forget to sign up for the free e-course giveaway. If you're interested, just visit the link below in the podcast description and sign up by tomorrow, March 1st. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.